like I said, we're just continuing on in our verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John. We're getting near the end here. We're, we're very close, but um, we're going to wrap up chapter 20 today. And then in the first Sunday of the new year, we'll, we'll wrap it up, cover John chapter 21, which is going to have a great, I think, encouragement <clears throat> and theme for us here as we move into the new year and see the things that God has for us. So it's going to be good. But here's what we've been looking at is, is beginning at chapter 20, we, we've seen that the tomb is now empty. Jesus has been crucified, placed in a tomb, but he has risen again. And let me just tell you, I, I know you don't need to hear this because I'm sure you are well familiar with this truth and reality, but the resurrection is so important in our faith. In fact, without the resurrection, we don't have any substantial faith. It's futile, as Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians 15. We have nothing to stand on. Oh, we can have faith in God and believe. But unless there's a resurrection, it all is for naught, essentially. So the resurrection becomes so important. And it's so important that Jesus wanted to be sure that this was not just something recorded down by one person, but that there were many witnesses involved. So many witnesses involved that it becomes kind of this irrefutable thing that this is not just the disciples that are collaborating this story together and conspiring, saying, hey guys, let's just tell the world that this is what happened, all right? Let's stick together with our, no, this isn't just the 11 at this point that are trying to conspire and try to say that, oh man, well, we spent, you know, these three years with Jesus and now he's dead. Well, we can't end like that. Let's say, that, no, Jesus has shown himself to many people. So there were multiple eyewitnesses to the very fact that he was alive again after his crucifixion, that he rose again from the grave. In any court of law, in any trial that takes place, there needs to be witnesses, right? If you don't have witnesses, then you can't really validate or prove what you're trying to argue in a court of law. But Jesus here certainly had witnesses covered. In fact, here's a little bit of a list to see after his resurrection, who he appeared to and kind of the way things unraveled here. First of all, we know that he appeared to Mary Magdalene as we covered that last Sunday, the beginning of John chapter 20. And then along with Mary Magdalene, there were other women that came with her to the tomb as Matthew records. So Jesus appeared to them. And then he appears to Cleopas and, and, and his companion on the road to May. So those two disciples. All of a sudden Jesus is there with them. They don't recognize him. He starts to share scripture with them. And then at the, the breaking of bread, suddenly they had that understanding, their eyes were open. They saw that it was Jesus. So he appeared to them and they went and, and, and shared with the other disciples. They also said that he appeared to Peter himself. So there was a time before what we're gonna see in John 21, where Jesus had kind of, it seemed a one-on-one -on -one restoration time with Peter. And then he uh, appeared to the disciples there behind locked doors, as we're going to see in our passage this morning. And then a week later after his resurrection, he appears to Thomas along with the other disciples there. And then he appears to seven of his disciples in Galilee, an unknown number of days afterwards. That's what we'll see in John 21. And then again to the 11 on a mountain in Galilee. Then he appears to 500 disciples at a time. So in other words, this is more than just somebody, you know, who's been uh, just having some kind of like hallucinating experience. Well, I think I saw Jesus. No, he appears to 500 at once. It's kind of hard to have 
a collective hallucinating experience with 500 at the same time, right? This is something where, again, Jesus is showing, this is real, guys, I'm alive. He appears to 500, as 1 Corinthians tells us, and then there are other various meetings with the 11 during that 40-day period that Jesus walked about on the earth in that resurrected, glorified body before his ascension to the Father. So 40 days after his resurrection, before he ascends to the Father. So many cases where people had seen Jesus. It's true, it authenticates it, it validates the fact that Jesus is alive. And so getting into our, our text here this morning, John chapter 20, verse 19, it says this. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. So here comes Jesus now. It's the day that he rose again, first day of the week, Sunday, and he comes to them in the evening time now. And he appears to them. He wants to make himself known to them that, that he is alive. But here's the thing. Notice the kind of the attitude of the disciples. They're all gathering together for fear of the Jews, right? They're worried. Nobody's out looking for Jesus. Nobody's, nobody's comprehending the very things that Jesus had already told them. That listen, guys, I'm gonna be going to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be crucified, betrayed. I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna rise again three days later. Jesus has been very clear on the whole agenda, but the disciples are not comprehending or understanding. They're not out there looking for Jesus. They're huddled together in isolation, worried, stressed out, in fear. They're worried about the Jews. Now the Jews, when that refers to that in the Gospel of John, it's talking about the religious establishment. You know, the priests and, and the... These were people that, again, had gotten very far from God, had gotten very corrupt. It's a religious establishment. The very ones that had kind of, you know, got Jesus crucified to begin with. Remember, Jesus had told his disciples, listen, the world is gonna hate you because it hates me. It's not gonna be an easy ride being a follower of Jesus, but he prepped them on it. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, oh man, this is happening a little, a little quicker than I imagined it to be happening here. They're all huddled together going, oh my goodness, we can't, we can't make ourselves known because they're gonna be coming after us now as followers of Jesus, trying to silence any kind of witness we might have. So they're huddled together. They're, they're worried. They're, they're fearful. But then Jesus comes. And it's interesting because Jesus is sure to record this very fact that they're in there while the doors were shut, which implies that they were locked, okay? And, and I believe John puts that in there to show that Jesus's resurrected body is no longer limited by any kind of physical matter or physical dimension, all right? Jesus doesn't have to come up to the door and be like, oh my goodness, these guys knock on the door. Guys, can you let me in? I'm here. I want to reveal myself. He's not having to knock on the door. He's just also like there with them. This resurrected, glorified body is completely new. It's different. It's changed. Luke records how Jesus was with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's breaking bread with them. And as he breaks bread with them, and they have that understanding, suddenly he vanishes from them. He's gone. Poof. He's, he's not having to get up and excuse himself. He's just like, different body, gone. And now he appears to the disciples and it tells us also in Luke's gospel that he began to ask his disciples for some food and he began to eat with them. This new glorified body, though it was completely new, 
I mean, he's able to do these physical things, but not be limited by physical things. And I love that aspect of the resurrected body. You see, Jesus is giving us a preview of what is to come for us, of our own glorified bodies to come. You see, for all of eternity, we're not gonna be some spirit just kind of floating on a cloud. You see, a lot of people have some really interesting ideas about eternity and heaven. And it gets depicted in that way, you know, comic strips, you're up there on a cloud playing a harp and you're like, man, eternity looks like it's gonna be rather boring. When you get that picture, right? You're thinking, what? Why am I just gonna be floating on a cloud? But that's not what eternity's gonna be. Eternity is gonna be so radical where we're gonna have new bodies that aren't limited by anything. We're gonna be reigning with Jesus here in his kingdom on earth for a, uh, for a thousand years and then a new heaven and a new earth is gonna be created and we're gonna be able to travel around, poof, like that. I mean, eternity is gonna be so radical. Are you excited for that? Our new bodies that, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where, where we must put on, that, that corruption must put on incorruption, mortality must put on immortality, and that we're all gonna be changed in the twinkling of an eye. I mean, we're gonna be given new bodies. And Jesus is giving us a preview of what that's gonna look like. But don't, don't lose sight now of what eternity is gonna be and why it's gonna be so special. Because it's not gonna be so special about what I'm gonna be able to do now and how I'm gonna be able to enjoy. It's gonna be special because we're gonna be with Jesus. That's the bar. You know what? If my body was limited, it's okay with me as long as I'm gonna be with Jesus. But I think we're gonna get the, the best of both worlds here. First John 3 verse two says, "'Beloved, now we are children of God.'" And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And that's gonna be just so wonderful. Now, like I said, up until this time, now there's been a lot of fear and doubt among the followers of Jesus. This whole resurrection scene hasn't been an immediate occasion of rejoicing. There's been a lot of fear and doubt and, and worry that's been going on. In fact, look at what Mark's gospel records for us. In chapter 16, verse 10 to 14, it says that she, Mary Magdalene, as we read at the beginning of John 20, Mary Magdalene went and told those who had been with them as they mourned and wept. They're not thinking, oh, he died, no worries, because he said he's gonna rise again. It's just countdown. No, they're, they're not counting down the days, they're mourning and weeping. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked out or walked and went into the country. That's the two on the road to miss. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. And later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So they have these eyewitnesses. Mary comes back, I've seen Jesus. Nah, sorry, Mary, I don't believe you. The two on the road to Mace, we've seen Jesus. No, I, uh -uh. I don't believe it. These guys are all doubting. They're worried. They're, they're in, locked, in a locked room right now. But yet notice what Jesus does here. He comes in, look at what we read there at the end of verse 19. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Now, I love that. That's, 
kind of a, a, a common greeting for you know, Hebrews. The word shalom in Hebrew simply means peace. That was a common way that they would greet one another, peace. Kind of meant everything to your highest good. But I believe when Jesus says this now, peace be with you, I think he's using this word now in a greater importance and with a greater significance in a way that this word truly hasn't really been comprehended up until this point. Because no longer is this just shalom, you know, all peace unto you, may everything be well with you. This is everything is well with you now because of what I've done. You see, Jesus is not just looking to secure this peace and, and to remove fear, he's looking to say, I want you to understand the peace that you now have with God because of what I've done for you. Because of the fact that I died for your sin and that I've risen again, you now have access to God the Father. Just as, as Jesus had, had said to Mary a few verses earlier, when he says, go back to the disciples, I'm gonna be ascending to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. He says, you now have a different relationship. You can now experience peace with God. This is a peace that they hadn't understood or comprehended up until now. And Jesus says, peace be with you. Because now, because of what I've done, you're gonna experience peace to a whole different level. In fact, Romans 5, 1 says, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That wasn't possible apart from what Jesus has just accomplished. Nobody can have peace with God apart from Jesus and faith in him. There's a lot of people that think about God and, and they're fearing and trembling and thinking, I just wanna to try to stay clear of God. I don't want anything. But Jesus says, no, you can have peace with God. And it comes through the forgiveness of sin. It comes through faith in Jesus, through trusting in the work that Jesus has done for you on the cross and understanding that that work is complete and it took and it was accepted because he rose again. It validates the work that Jesus did to where we can say, oh, I am at peace with God now. Can you imagine that? See, all through history, I mean, people have had different ideas about God's and they've worshiped false gods, but none of those religions ever bring people into peace with their God. They're worried. There's no assurance. They're trying to appease their God. They're trying to live a good life, do good things, and hope that their God is going to one day accept them, but there's no peace. But as Christians, it's a whole different thing. We have peace with God, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Oh, may those words ring out in your heart today. Peace be with you. That's what Jesus wants you to know and experience. Peace. Not just a formal greeting, peace, shalom, but to have peace with God today. Because that's available now through what Jesus has done for you. And look at verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side where the nails were pierced through, where the spear was thrust, thrust through his side by the Roman guard. He showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus goes on to show the disciples his wounds. It's interesting that in his resurrected body, those wounds weren't gone. You'd think, oh, all those horrible things would be 
removed, but in his glorified body, those wounds remain. In fact, so much so that, as I said last week, when John is writing Revelation, he's, he's taken up before the throne of God. It says that he saw a lamb emerge, the lamb of God, as though he were slain. See, even in all of eternity, Jesus is gonna be bearing the marks of his wounds the very battle scars that he went through. Not, I don't believe, to kind of hold that over us. Look at what I had to do to have you here with me. Oh my goodness, look at this. Not in a way of holding it over you, but to say, look at how much I love you. This is what I was willing to do so that you could have life with me and that we could spend eternity together. It's an act of love and it's, and it's a show of his great love for us. It'll be a reminder for us of what of the price that needed to be paid and that we couldn't do it ourselves. Jesus did it for us. And the only reason we're there is because of Jesus. All of eternity will be, we'll be reminded of the great work that was accomplished for all those that believe in Jesus to be with him for all of eternity. You see, as Jesus says, look at my hands and my side, there were those that believed in this day that Jesus only came as a spirit, that he wasn't really in the flesh. In fact, uh, Luke chapter 24, verse 37 records for us that when Jesus comes in to that room, all the disciples thought that they were seeing a spirit. They didn't even realize that this was Jesus in the flesh there. And it became a false doctrine and teaching that crept into the early church where people began to say Jesus never really came in the flesh. He was just a spirit among us. There's no way he could have taken on flesh. That would have corrupted him. But they failed to see that Jesus came as a perfect, sinless human, able to stand in our place. So this false teaching happened. In our day, it's kind of the other way around where people say, oh no, Jesus really isn't God. He was just a good person. He just came as a regular man. He was just a regular man. Good teacher, did good things, but that was it. Just came in the flesh and died. It's kind of the other way around. But in that day, they didn't believe he came in the flesh, that he was just a spirit. So Jesus comes now and he kind of dispels this reality. He says, look at these things. And we're gonna later see that he tells Thomas to go ahead and, and, and touch his side here to see that he is truly there in the flesh. Now, what happens when the disciples had the reassurance of Jesus being present with them, that he was actually there with them in, in physical form? What happened? It tells us right there in verse 20. What was their reaction? Somebody shouted out, they became what? Glad. They became glad. Where they were once in fear, stressed out and worry, suddenly when they get a fresh view of Jesus, they become glad. I love that. You see, we can encounter a lot of Christians, and maybe you battle with it yourself sometimes, that you can see a lot of people that are, are followers of Jesus but are, are living anything but a glad life. Uh, there's that saying we used to use all the time where it looks like some Christians have been baptized in pickle juice. You've heard that before, right? I mean, that's just kind of a, I, I don't know who originated that and why, it's kind of weird, but... I heard that all the time growing up. And, and it's true, you, you get some of these people that just look so sour. They just look so down, discouraged as, as followers of Christ. And the reality is, 
we should be the most glad people in this world, the most happy, the most excited, the most joyful people in this world today. Why? Because we understand that Jesus has forgiven us of our sin and that we have life in him. And not just life now, but life forever. We should be glad. And, and sometimes we just need to come into a fresh view of Jesus. Maybe you've been distracted lately with other things that have been creeping into your life that have been vying for your time and attention and it's robbed you of just seeing Jesus. That's what's happening with the disciples here. And you might be wondering, how, how do I get a fresh view of Jesus? Well, I've been kind of harping on this a lot Sundays here and there, but one way I know we can do that is just by getting up in the morning before the busyness of the day and just opening up the word, saying, Jesus, come and reveal yourself to me because this is the way that he's gonna speak to you and he's gonna show himself to you is through his word. As you begin to pour into scripture and seek the Lord, you're gonna begin to see Jesus. You're gonna see who he is, what he's done for you, and it's gonna encourage you and it's gonna make you glad. Spend time seeking the Lord, getting that fresh view of Jesus, how we need to be re reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done and, and the peace that we can now have with him. Our, our sins are forgiven. We have life in him, life forevermore. And so we should be the most glad people around. Oh, I know we're gonna face trials. I know there's gonna be hardships at times that we're gonna have to endure. But here's the thing. We know how things end. We know how things end. It ends with me living for eternity with Jesus in my new glorified body that still enjoys food and won't need a treadmill to make up for it. Amen, right? That's how it ends for us. With Jesus forever. And, and you see, when we think about the, the trials that we encounter in this world, I mean, James says that our life is but a vapor. What's a vapor? It's just like this little mist that goes up and it dissipates in no time. You can't grab it. You, you can't, it, it just goes before you even have a chance to even look at it barely. That's what our life is like in, in comparison to all of eternity. And, and I believe, man, we're gonna be sitting there one day with Jesus thinking, why did I waste so much time stressing out on those very temporal things that in, in, in the scope of eternity were just nothing, a blip on the radar? Why did I spend so much time worrying about it, stressing about it? How we need to look to Jesus and go, Jesus, I understand that all these things are, are just temporal. How I need to hold on to you, look to you, and just experience the peace that you have for me. Experience the gladness that I can have as I get a fresh view of you, Jesus. That's what we need to do. Well, Jesus says to them again now, verse 21, he says this, peace to you, as the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So with the disciples now glad, and, and pumped up with some excitement. Here's what Jesus does next. He, he commissions them. He sends them out. Here's, here's the wonderful thing, gang, is that we're not just waiting and biding our time for eternity. That's what a lot of Christians kind of do. They're saying, well, I'm just hanging on, waiting for Jesus to come back, 
waiting to be, I'm just hanging on. It's like, stop hanging on and just get busy serving the Lord. Because here's what Jesus does next. He, he commissions his disciples, he says, as the Father sent me. And that word in the Greek where he says, the, as the Father sent me, is the Greek word apostello, which simply is where we get our, our word apostle from. It means sent ones. And so Jesus now, he's calling his disciples to say, I got a job for you. I'm not expecting you just to kind of hang on, bide your time until I come again. I want you to get busy. And it says, we get busy serving the Lord, using these lives for his glory, that you're gonna continue to grow in gladness and joy. Because see, what is, I think, one of the greatest joy robbers in our lives is when we get the focus on ourselves, when we start to look a little bit too much inward. And what's the great remedy for that? Get out and serve. Look to bless other people. Go take this good news to people. Get busy living your life, not for yourself, but for the Lord and for others. That's gonna increase your joy and gladness. And so Jesus commissions his disciples here now. He sends them out. These disciples became the first apostles, the sent ones. Just as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus now sends his disciples. But before Jesus sends, he fills them. Before he calls, he begins to equip them. Notice what happens. He, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's at this time that the disciples truly became born again. They became children of God. Because see, what happens here is that as the Holy Spirit is breathed on into them, they now become sealed and linked to the Father. It's the second time that that idea of breathing on them is used in the Bible. The first time was with Adam. When, when God breathed into Adam, Genesis 2, 7, and Adam became a living soul. It's the birth of the physical man. But now we see the new work or the work of the new creation, the spiritual man, where the Holy Spirit is poured into them. And it's like what Jesus had been prepping his disciples over. We've talked about this as we've gone through John chapter 14 and, and in John 16, this, this threefold working of the Holy Spirit that I believe is seen in scripture here. It's this relationship of the spirit to the follower. Because notice what we read here in John 14, verse 16 to 17. And I'll pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here in this verse, we see the first two kind of relationship of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Where Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be with you. It's the Greek word para. Holy Spirit comes alongside you. He's with you, but he's there to draw you to the Father. And then when the person is putting their faith in Jesus, they become a, a new creation. The Holy Spirit is now in them. Holy Spirit will be with you and will be in you, the Greek word en. So we got para, we got en, but there's a third working of the Holy Spirit, I believe, that God wants to do in addition to that. This is the leading to the Father and then the moment of salvation, he's with you and then will be in you. That's the moment of salvation. But there's a subsequent work that comes after salvation. I believe it's to be a, a, an ongoing daily thing. Because Jesus said later on to his disciples in Acts chapter one, verse eight, to wait in Jerusalem, right? Where you'll receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you'll be my witnesses. And that idea of the Holy Spirit will come upon you is the Greek word epi, which means to overflow in you. The Holy Spirit's already in you, but now we want to see the Holy Spirit coming out of you, overflowing out of you, where now it's no longer you that people see, but it's the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit come to do? To testify of Jesus, it tells us in John's gospel, to make Jesus known. So we need the, the power, Jesus says, the dunamis power, the dynamite kind of power of the Holy Spirit that comes upon you, overflows in you, so it's no longer just residing in you at the moment of salvation, but it's coming out of you so that Jesus is more readily seen. That's that threefold working of the Holy Spirit that we see in Scripture. And this is that second part of it here that we see in John chapter 20, where Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit into them, where I believe they are born again. There's that work of regeneration taking place. They are sealed and marked. And it's what the Bible confirms for us here is taking place. Look at Ephesians chapter one, verse 13 to 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, a promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, it says, who also has sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So that's the idea of the Holy Spirit coming into you at the moment of salvation. It's like God is saying, hey, you're mine now. I'm gonna mark you as though you're mine. And, 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 and nobody can... Take away that salvation work now. I've sealed you. It's there. You're, you're mine. And he, and he marks us. He identifies us as his through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. But I pray that we won't just be those saying, oh, good. Yeah, I've had a moment. I've had an experience of conversion. Yes, the Holy Spirit is in me. But I pray that there's an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit where he's filling us and overflowing in us so that we can be greater witnesses and a greater impact in the world as we reveal Jesus in all that we do. That's what the Holy Spirit desires to do. That's why Jesus says, it's good that I go to the Father. If I don't go to the Father, the Holy Spirit can't be poured out. But when the Holy Spirit's poured out, oh, there's gonna be a greater work that takes place than what I could ever do because Jesus was limited to one location, uh, uh, one place at, at a time, one person doing the work, but now he's gonna have an army, the church going out, empowered by the Spirit to accomplish the work of God. How cool and how good that is. Well, here's part of the work that's gonna be involved now. Look at verse 23. Oh, this is an interesting verse. It says there, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And you're thinking, what is he doing here with the disciples? What is he saying? Is he, is he kind of commissioning the disciples to be like now priests who can go out and say, yes, my child, I forgive you of your sins. You are forgiven. Like they're gonna set up little confessional booths and have people come in now and okay, forgiven, you're great. I mean, what is happening here? That's kind of the, the imagery that we get when we, when we hear this. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. How do the disciples do that? Well, understand that this isn't a human right that we have to forgive sins. In fact, remember when Jesus was ministering and uh, there was a pe some people that brought this paralytic man to him. The house was so full, they lowered the man down from the roof. And what did Jesus say to him? 
He said in Luke 5, verse 20, man, your sins are forgiven you. But then notice the response. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, everybody thought Jesus is gonna look at this parallel and say, man, you're healed, get up and walk. But he says instead, man, your sins are forgiven you. And everybody thought, whoa, Jesus, you can't do that. This is for God alone to do. So Jesus isn't telling his disciples, you can have the power to forgive sins. What I believe Jesus is telling his disciples, you now have the role of proclaiming that sins can be forgiven. But it's only done through faith in Jesus, through the work that Jesus did. The disciples were being sent out to go now and share with people this good news that their sins can be forgiven by the work that Jesus has done for them. Listen to what David Guzik says. He says, Jesus gives his disciples authority to announce forgiveness and to warn of guilt as authorized by the Holy Spirit. This lays down the duty of the church to proclaim forgiveness to the penitent believer and the duty of the church to warn the unbeliever that they are in danger of forfeiting the mercy of God. So we now have the great privilege. And, and let me tell you, my friends, there is, it's one of the greatest joys that you will have when you start to share with people the good news of Jesus Christ. And you begin to tell them, listen, we were guilty before God, but Jesus came and he died on a cross to forgive you of your sins and to bring you into a right relationship with God that we can now have peace with God. And that comes simply by putting your faith in Jesus. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't be a good enough person to attain it. It's simply through what Jesus has done. And when you see people have the light go on, people that have been living with this guilt, wondering, can I ever have the assurance that I'll be in heaven one day? This guilt, this conscience that's, that's just weighing them down, wondering, am I gonna be condemned before God? Or can I actually have peace with God? When you begin to share with them this truth that they can be forgiven, and the light goes on where suddenly it's like, and this burden just gets lifted off. There's no greater joy than to walk through that with somebody and for them to see them give their life to Jesus and be saved and to have that hope now of heaven and life eternal with Jesus. There is no greater reward than you have aside from your own salvation than to see other people go through that. Man, I, I, I trust that you are active in getting out there and telling people that they can be forgiven, that Jesus has secured the way for them. Put your trust in Jesus, it's simple. It's not complicated. I'm not asking you to join a religion or a church. Although, if you wanna join a church, join Riverside. You need to tell them that too. But we're not asking you to join anything, but just to be linked to God through Jesus Christ, who's the way, the truth, and the life. It's it, it's simple. And it's a great blessing when we begin to share that with people. Well, let's finish this up here. Verse 24, now, Thomas called the twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came the first time there. And the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. So here's Thomas. 
Now, Thomas is often called what? Doubting Thomas. Hey, guess what? He wasn't alone in that. Because we've already seen how all the disciples were doubting. They were unbelieving. Even when they have witnesses come to them, we've seen Jesus. I don't believe you. All of them are doubting. Too bad Thomas gets a bit of a, a bad rap. But here's, here's one sad thing about Thomas is that he wasn't with the disciples eight days prior when they got to see Jesus. In other words, Thomas has been going through an additional eight days of misery, sorrow, I'm sure sadness, wondering, is that it? Is Jesus done with now? Is this ride that we've been on over? What's, what's next now? Eight days, I'm sure, of unbelief, sadness, and sorrow. It's a reminder for me of what Hebrews tells us. Not to forsake the assembling of one another. It, it, it's right there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's again, we all have a part to play here with one another, encouraging each other. He says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. See, we need this time together to encourage us. And, and let me tell you, I don't think there's been a time, and I've grown up going to church, where I, I haven't been blessed by going to church. Because it's here that we get to collectively just encourage one another, seek the Lord together. God promises that as we gather together in his name, he's present with us. And it's a sweet thing. And yet, there's many that miss out because they don't come. Got other things on the go. Ah, I got sports or I got that. And I think there's a lot of times that people are, are missing out, going through unneedless days of discouragement or difficulty. Thomas was in that boat. And if he's just there, in the assembling of the disciples that first time, man, he, he wouldn't have had to spend these eight days in misery. Nevertheless, Jesus comes and again, there's this unbelief that's been going on. Now, that's what Jesus is kind of calling them on to begin with, unbelief, not, not so much doubt. Doubt is that intellectual problem where there's other things that get in the way of us really seeing what Jesus wants to do, but, but unbelief is a moral problem. We choose not to believe. It's what, the, it's what the nation of Israel did when, when God says, listen, I want you to take the land. I'm giving it to you. It's yours, take it. But in their unbelief, they said, we can't do it. The obstacles are too great. The challenge is too much. We're, we're, gonna, we're gonna die. Unbelief. They refuse to believe the word of the Lord. And, and how... We need to be those that don't allow unbelief to begin to set in. Well, it might start with some doubt, but then quickly can lead to unbelief where we're just unwilling to believe. And I pray that as you take up the word of God, that you're, you're being filled with greater encouragement of the things of God and that you're taking God at his word in, in belief and receiving this so that, again, you're not, allowing yourself to be 
down and, and discouraged, but taking this in every promise, saying, thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you for what you've done. And so look at this here. Jesus comes and he meets Thomas right where he's at. He doesn't rebuke Thomas. He says, Thomas, go ahead. Touch my hands here. Touch my side. See that it's me. He doesn't get after Thomas. He doesn't rebuke him. And that's interesting because Thomas said those things privately with the disciples. But yet Jesus knew exactly what he needed. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus is always present with us. He knows what you need. He knows what you're going through. And he desires to come and meet you where you're at and, and, and minister to you in that situation. Nothing is hidden from the Lord. Understand that. Whatever you're needing, praying for it. Seek the Lord. Trust him. That he's gonna do his good and perfect work in your life. He's never distant to where he doesn't hear. He knows exactly where you're at. You know exactly what Thomas needed. And he comes. He says, Thomas, go ahead. See that it's me. I'm alive, buddy. And what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. See, Thomas understood now, not just going off of what other people said, he's experienced it now for himself. And every single one of us need to be sure that this is a faith that's personal to you, that he is your Lord and your God. Not just going off of what other people have said, not just going off of, well, you know, my grandpa, he went to church. He was a good man. Yeah, he, he taught me everything. Hey, that's great and all, but is he your Lord and your God? Or is he your grandpa's Lord and your God or God? You need to make this personal for yourself. You need to be able to say, yes, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. The one that has given me life and forgiveness of sin. And Jesus said to him, verse 29, he said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think Jesus says, says that as an encouragement to all of us. Well, there's going to be many that are going to come after you that, that don't have the blessing of what you've been able to experience. But we have the blessing nonetheless to see the Lord as we just pick up his word and see him clearly on every page. Be believing. Grow in your faith. Because Jesus rewards those that believes him without having the privilege of seeing him. But, but we're not without excuses, Romans 1 tells us, because all we have to do is look all around us and go, oh, there's truly a God. Look at everything around us. This doesn't come about by random chance. There's a God. And he loves me and he sent his son to die on a cross. His word tells me so and his word is proven faithful and true. And so John ends this chapter in verse 30 saying, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John lets us know, man, he's just scratching the surface here of what Jesus has done. Do you understand that you're never gonna exhaust the greatness of God? Isn't that a wonderful thing to realize that no matter how many times you read through the word of God, Every time you go through it, you're gonna keep seeing Jesus and the greatness of his love for you, the greatness of what he's done for you. You're gonna see him popping through those pages of scripture in, in, in fresh ways that you will keep uncovering the greatness of Jesus. 
John will, will later say, I mean, all the libraries in the world couldn't contain all the volumes that could be written about Jesus and what he's done. We're just scratching the surface. I understand this side of eternity, you're just scratching the surface of the greatness of God. Keep seeking him. Keep exploring who Jesus is and what he's done for you, what you have in him. Keep seeking him because you will keep growing in the wonder and amazement of who Jesus is. And guess what? When we move on eternity, we're just gonna begin to uncover those things in a whole nother layer and dimension then at that time. It's gonna keep getting greater and greater. That's who Jesus is. Keep seeking him. Because we're just scratching the surface here. Now, the resurrection is that which is so paramount to what we believe. The resurrection, as we've been covering here in this chapter, is not something that's up for debate. It's not something that we just kind of hold in tension. What did this really, what was it exactly? How did it really look? This is paramount to our faith because, like I said, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile. In fact, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. As we do, I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to close with a, a, a couple songs here. Worship team, come on up. Jump to 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 12, this is what we read. Now, if Christ has preached that he's been raised from the dead... How do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That's, that's the magnitude of it. Christ isn't risen, then you're still living in your sin. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. See, if we're just living for Jesus for this life, then Paul's saying, you're just a bunch of suckers. No, the very resurrection is our very hope. Hope that keeps us moving through this life with expectation of greater things to come. Look at what he says in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, those who have died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So Paul says Jesus has become the first fruits of our resurrection. And, and that was a familiar picture for them in this day of harvesting where they would bring their first fruits of the harvest to God as a sacrifice, as an offering to say, Lord, we're committing this to you knowing that there's more to come. Jesus is showing us here that he's the first fruits. In other words, there's more to come. It's not just for Jesus. It's gonna be for all of us because he rose again. We too are gonna rise again. And it's accomplished through Jesus and what he's done. Just as sin came in through one man, which you might think that's kind of unfair. Well, so too God then allowed the salvation and forgiveness of our sin to come in through one man, through Jesus Christ, who died and rose again. This is huge stuff, my friends. This is so important to our faith. Jesus is alive. And because he is, we can have life today and forevermore. That's why John is writing all this, so that you might believe. And that by believing, you may have life in his name.
I hope you're experiencing that life, that resurrected life today. I hope you're experiencing the gladness and the joy and the peace that comes with that truth. Let's stand together and let's worship the Lord. And God, we just thank you for your son, Jesus, who came to this world, gave himself so willingly, died for our sin, but rose again to where we know and understand that we have the promise of life now because of it. So we just wanna commit ourselves to you, Lord. I pray that you would call us and send us out, Lord, to go and share that good news with people, to let them know their sins can be forgiven through faith in Jesus. And if you're here today, I wanna just let you know, if you're here today and you've not made this personal for you, to where you've not said those words, Jesus, you now are my Lord, my God, my Savior. I wanna encourage you what, you, what are you waiting for? Don't put that off any longer. You've heard today that he came to do this work for you that you couldn't do for yourself. He came to forgive you your sin that you might have life in him. Is he your God? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord today? Have you put your faith in Jesus? If you haven't done that today, I encourage you, just call out to Jesus today and say, God, I admit I'm in need of saving. I'm a sinner and I can't take care of that on my own. So I put my faith in you, Jesus. Come in, be my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me my sin. If you pray that prayer today, then guess what? You become a child of God. You become part of the family of God where now you are a new creation in him. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Would you pray that today if you haven't done so? And if you pray that today, come and tell somebody that you've done so. Come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to share with you more about it. Let's sing. And I'm gonna invite the prayer teams to come and make themselves available in the front to pray with you. If there's a need that we can pray for today, a prayer request, then just come and see these people in the front or in the back and we'd love to pray with you.